0: Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneur Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi
1: Yosef Weinberg Chapter 1, page
2: 31
1: I'm still not satisfied it was I quite the it. We just I know. still would prefer the Yechidas. Yeah, The Tanya is helping you enter into Yichidus. At any time, at any place, whenever you want, you can enter into because You can have a private audience with the Rebbe inside of you. He's saying, isn't that better? He says, I can teach you, you can come into Yechidus, and I'll give you the answer. It's wonderful. But isn't it better that I'll teach you how to enter into Yechidus, to a private audience, with the Rebbe inside of you, at any time, at any place, whenever you want? That's what I'm going to do with the Tanya. So isn't it better that I should give you a way, and I should give you, teach you the path, that you should always be able to access the Rebbe... What is the Rebbe? The Rebbe is is godliness. The Rebbe is the divine, the genuine, the deepest, the truest. I'm going to help you access that, the Rebbe inside of you, the divine essence, the divine spark inside of you. So therefore, you can at any time, at any place, you can always find the answers to all your dilemmas and all your problems. And you can do it on your own. Isn't that much more powerful? It's like in Tzedakah. A wealthy person could help you out, write you a check, and tomorrow you'll, you'll need him again. Isn't this better if he makes you self-sufficient? That's the highest form of tzedakah. The best teacher is not someone who gives you all the right answers. That's not not the best teacher. The best teacher is the one who has the patience, who will teach you how to teach yourself, how to help yourself. The next time you face a problem, you'll be able to figure it out yourself. Who shows you a path, a way, how to learn to make you self-sufficient. That's the best teacher. That takes patience, it takes time, it takes effort. That's what I'm doing with the Tanya. The Tanya is a self-help book. I'm going to train you and I'm going to show you how you can help yourself, how you can access your own neshamma. You should be able to tell the difference between the godly voice inside of you, the genuine voice inside of you, the real you inside yourself, and the superficial, the surface, the yetzahara, the other voice, the animal soul. So if once, once you learn and you understand and you grasp this idea the Tanya that I'm going to spell out in this book then you'll you'll have a path for the rest of your life you'll have a way to access and that's, and that's really the, the genius of the Altar Rebbe and the whole Chabad movement I mean next Tuesday night will be Yud Shvat. it's the yard site of the Previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, in the day the Rebbe became Rebbe, in the very first public talk 55 years ago, when the Rebbe became Rebbe, the Rebbe said said that the path of the Chabad Rebbe's was not to rely on the Rebbe's, unlike the Polish Hasidim, which relied on the charisma of the Rebbe to carry them. He says the path of the Chabad Rebbe's is that each Hasid has to take the initiative on his own. And he says therefore I'm accepting the position to be Rebbe, but don't think that I'm going to live your life here. I'll help the best that I can, but ultimately every chassid, every Jew is responsible for his own path, every chassid is responsible to fulfill his mission. And look, unfortunately, tragically, for the last 12 years, since Rebbe passed away, and then two years before that, we haven't had the opportunity to even hear the Rebbe. But the Chabad path was, that the Rebbe gave us, and the, that it's beginning with the Tanya, the foundation is the Tanya, the foundation of everything that followed is is the Tanya, everything is within the Tanya, that the Chabad approach was to give the Chassid enough, not only information and material, but a path, how to access and to be able to distinguish and discern, to be able to access, to go deep inside yourself and to be able to access the neshama inside of you, the godly spark inside of you. So the Alt-Rebbe says, of course I can... I can He's saying it's not just a technicality that's simply the too many Hasidim and I simply, I don't have the time to meet every Hasid. So I have no choice. I'm going to give you something that's second best. I'm going to give you the Tanya. He says, no, emphatically no. I'm giving you something even better than Yechidus. Because I'm, this book is going to help you. The Tanya is going to help you help yourself at any time, at any place, no matter where you are, wherever you are. You will be able to enter into the Yechidus with the Rebbe inside of you, with the divine spark inside of you. Isn't that much better? It was a Rav Hillel Paracher, one of the most famous Lubavitch Hasidim. The Rebbe's once said about him that he was a half-Rebbe. He was like a half-Hasid and a half-Rebbe. The non-Chabad Rebbe said about him that in hundreds of years, there hasn't been such a Jew who has worked on himself and worked on his personality and character. He's something special. And once he was traveling to the Rebbe, he felt that he wasn't inspired enough. He felt a lull in the service of Hashem. So he was traveling to the Rebbe. And he went with his coach driver. And on the way, it was an inn, and he woke up early, and he started davening, went to the mikvah, started davening, and the way Chabad, Hasidim, would daven for hours and hours. And he spent the whole day davening. When he finished davening, you know, waking up at four in the morning and preparing and davening, saying each word, and really getting into the davening, the wagon driver said, I don't understand. I thought we were in a rush to get to the Rebbe. Why Why did you... You spend the whole day davening here in the inn. So he says, listen, I'm going to the Rebbe. What am I traveling through? I'm traveling to the Rebbe to be inspired, to be inspired with with godliness. He says, well, if if the Rebbe met me here at the inn, and suddenly I had the the best davening I had in months, and my soul was ecstatic, and I felt inspired, and I felt, uh, so I had my private audience here. So the Alter Rebbe says, that's his answer. After he builds up his question, he says, I'm not, this is not a substitute for Yechidus. It's even better than Yechidus. Because I'm going to teach you to help yourself so you, you can have Yechidus whenever you want. I'm going to show you and teach you how to be able to discern the voice, the voice of the godly soul. So you should be able to distinguish between your surface self, your deeper self, your genuine self, and your superficial self. It's true, without the tanya, it's very difficult to distinguish where your voice is coming from. Who is really speaking? Is that my godly voice speaking? Is that my animal soul speaking? Am I deluding myself? But the tanya distinguishes and helps us to discover that inner voice, that genuine voice. And with each successive rebbe, with each successive generation, it became more and more clear, became even more accessible and available. As the fifth, There was a story of the fifth Lubavitcher rebbe once had a private audience with his father, Rabbi, Sh- Rabbi, the Rabbi Marash, and um, Rabbi Shmuel. And he once told him, he says, sometimes a person thinks that it's, he wants to daven, he wants to spend time praying and focusing on prayer and really connect. But suddenly, when he has an inspiration to pray, suddenly something pops into his mind and says to himself, you know, I can spend these hours studying Torah. Let me study a few pages of Talmud. Let me study a few pages of Tanya, a few pages of Hasidic Discourse. He says, so how do I know which voice is the genuine voice, which voice is coming from my godly soul, and which voice is just a distraction? He says, anything that stops you from doing something active, something good, you're inspired to do something good, and then a voice comes and finds a reason why not to do it, you know it's not coming from a good place when his son, the Rebbe Rabbi Shalom Dov was the future Rebbe, he said he was stunned. He said, because it's the first time in his life that he ever heard, he never found this anywhere. It's the first time in his life he ever heard that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, the animal soul could come dressed up in the garb of a chassin. That suddenly when it's time to do something, suddenly a voice pops in, Maybe and now, maybe now I should spend time davening, maybe now I should spend time learning. It's a wonderful thing. Learning is a wonderful thing. Doubting is a wonderful thing. But if it, if it was a second thought, an afterthought, and it's a reason not to do something active and something positive, then you know it's not coming from a good place. So without the tanya, without the teachings of Hasidus, I don't know how to discern which, what's coming from my ego and what's coming from my godly soul, what's genuine, what isn't. Without the tanya, you can be very superficial, and you can be so self-delusional, you can be so deluded. You think you're studying Torah, and you're so proud of yourself, and really it's all ego-motivated. So we, where is all that coming from? So the Tanya really helps us, the average Jew, the Benenit, the average Jew, every single Jew, it helps them to be able to make these subtle distinctions between the godly soul and the animal soul, and where is the source, and where is it coming from. And it helps us, teaches us how to listen to that inner voice, and how to access that inner voice. So the Alter Rebbe is answering his Hasidim after he spent the first half of the introduction building up the question of the Hasidim. In the second half he says, absolutely, this is not only a substitute that's even better than Yechidim. Because I want to teach you. I am not happy unless I teach you how to help yourself. Unless Otherwise I have not accomplished my mission. My entire goal in life by setting up the Chabad Hasidic approaches to helping everyone help themselves, they should be able to enter into Jerusalem the long short way, but the definite way. You will definitely be able to enter Jerusalem if you follow this path. It's long, it's, it's labor intensive, it takes a lot of effort, a lot of focus, a lot of concentration, but if you do it, I promise you, guarantee that you will enter into Jerusalem with every fiber of your being, every bone in your body, with your mind and your heart and you will be able to enter into your chidus with the Rebbe inside of you happen to touch the godly spark inside. And that's all through the tanya. So now that you appreciate what the tanya is,
2: now let's start. <laughs> Chapter 1. We have learned an oath is administered to him. Before a Jew is born, an oath is administered to him in heaven, charging him, Be righteous and be not wicked, and even if the whole world judging you by your actions tells you that you are righteous. Regard yourself as wicked.
1: As we said earlier, this, uh, the Tanya, the, first, the last time the Altar Rebbe said the Tanya in public over a period of, of a few years was on Rosh Hashanah the day after his grandson, Rabbi Menachem Mendel, the Tzadik, was born. So he ties it in with birth. And this is the story of every Jew's life when the Jewish soul is born, before it's born, before it enters into the body, it journeys into the body from an, an, an heaven, from on high, uh, they administer an oath to the soul.
2: The soul of a Jew descends into a body for a purpose, in order to fulfill a specific spiritual mission in this world. To enable him to fulfill it, a heavenly oath is administered to him that he be righteous and not wicked and concurrently that he regard himself as wicked and not righteous. The root of the verb, an oath is ministered, is virtually identical with the root of the verb... Sova. One causes him to be satiated. Accordingly, the oath charged him to be righteous may also be understood to mean that the soul is thereby invested with the power that enables it to fulfill its destiny in life on Earth.
1: Okay. The question is, who exactly are you administering an oath to? The divine soul wants to do the right thing. The divine soul doesn't need any oaths, any encouragement to do the right thing. That's all the divine soul wants to do. The animal soul, the ego. What does it? Have? He's not. You're not. The soul is being administered an oath, not the ego. Our distractions come from our ego, so. Who exactly are we administering an oath to? and What does administering an oath help? The soul already wants to do the right thing. So you're administering uh, an oath to the soul, making them swear that they will live a righteous life, they will journey through life and do the right thing. He doesn't need an oath, and an oath won't help. The oath is only binding on the soul. So what's the idea of an oath? So he explains that the root of the word oath it comes from the word to satiate, to fill. That basically we're, this from heaven, we give the soul, the soul is given tremendous energies, extra, extra energy, extra boost of energy, because the soul is going to need it. Yes, of course the soul wants to do the right thing. The soul doesn't need any encouragement. But because of the challenges that the soul will face, the soul needs extra strength, extra energy. So by administering an oath, we give the soul extra energy. What's the connection between the literal meaning of the word Shavua, which means oath, and the other meaning of the word Shavua, the root of the word Shavua, which means Sova, which means to satiate? The difference, the connection between the two is, just like literally, when you take an oath, when you swear, what are you doing? You're committing yourself. Even without swearing, you know, your word is good. But when you swear, there's an extra commitment. Even if there'll be obstacles, you won't let any obstacles get in the way. If you commit yourself, you'll try your best. But if there are obstacles, listen, I try, There's nothing I can do. But once you put your hand, you lift up your hand, and you take an oath, that's fire and water. Nothing is going to stop you. And, you, and, even if, and you'll need it, because if you face a tremendous, a formidable obstacle, you'll need tremendous strength to be able to overcome that obstacle. So the, um, the idea of administering the soul an oath is that the soul should feel so committed that the soul will be able to draw deeper strengths, deeper energies, hidden strengths, hidden energies, in order to be able to overcome the obstacles that we all face in life, the soul has to tap into reserve, reserve energy, reserve forces. The ordinary forces are not enough because the obstacles are are so strong. Each and every one of us have to face our own personal obstacles. So the soul really has to tap into very, very deep, hidden inner reservoirs of strength to be able to fulfill the oath of live, going through life and being a tzaddik and doing the right thing. But then he concludes, even though we administer an oath that you should be a tzaddik and don't be wicked, but even if the whole world will tell you that you're a tzaddik, in your own eyes, you should always regard yourself as wicked.
2: Okay? This calls for explanation, for we have learned in the Mishnah of Oath, be not wicked in your own estimation. How then can we say that an oath is administered to the soul, that it regards itself as wicked, when this directly contradicts the Mishnahianic injunction not to regard oneself as wicked?
1: So it's a a flat-out contradiction. Here he says you should always consider yourself wicked, and in ethics of our fathers it says clearly you should not consider yourself wicked. So how do you reconcile that contradiction? That's question number one. Furthermore...
2: Furthermore, if a person considers himself wicked, he will be grieved at heart and depressed, and consequently will not be able to serve God joyfully and with a contented heart. Apart from the previously mentioned contradiction from the Mishnah, an additional question is now raised. A cardinal principle in the service of God is that it be performed with joy... Joy at the privilege of serving him either through performing a positive command or refraining, refraining from that which is prohibited. How then can one be required to take a nose to consider himself wicked when this will cause him to be depressed, making it impossible for him to serve God with joy?
1: So even, even beside the contradiction from this Braise to the ethics of our fathers, even just logically, it makes no sense. What's written in Ethics of Our Fathers makes sense. A person should not consider himself wicked. If a person would consider himself wicked, he would make you very depressed. If the missioner says, that no matter what you do, despite your best efforts, you are wicked, that's a terrible, terrible uh, assumption to live with. Because it's one thing if we tell a person, like, hey, you did something wrong, change it, fix it, mend your ways. So then you mend your ways, and from that point on, you know, you put it behind you, and from that point on, you can say, I fixed it, I dealt with it, and now I'm a tzadeh. Before I was a Russia, before I did something terrible, I regret it, and I I fixed it. But the, the uh, to tell a person that no matter what you do, even if you go through your entire life and you're doing the right thing, nevertheless, you should always view yourself as a, as a wicked person, that's then that's a very depressing thought. And there's a difference between a person thinking I did something terrible or a person thinking that I am terrible. There's a huge difference. If you did something terrible, what you're saying is basically I'm good. Essentially I'm good. I'm a good person. I did something terrible, so I feel bad. I feel sorry. And I regret it, and I'll make sure it'll never happen again. But if you tell me that not, it's not I did something good, My, I am no good. No matter what I do, I am no good, I'm rotten, I'm no good. So then that's very depressing. Why, would it, why, why even try? What's the point? No matter what I do, I'm a rusher. I am wicked, and I am evil, I'm negative and I'm bad. That's the way a person has to view himself. You know, to talk about self-confidence, talk about uh, positive, uh, positive thinking, and positive feedback. If a person's view of himself is so negative, and the Torah says you should always view yourself as being wicked and evil, as if there's something good in that, they "How's it? it makes no sense. It's illogical. How could there be anything good in it? If a person wants to be demanding on himself. A person wants to be honest with himself. A person wants to be... That's fine. But if you tell a person that no matter what I do, I am no good, then, then, then it's hopeless. It'll lead you to, to depression. That's the difference between depression and bitterness. Bitterness means I'm bitter about something I did. You know, as I say, expressing in Yiddish is passage. It's not for someone like me. I should do something like this. It's not befitting. So therefore, I feel bad. I'm ashamed of myself. I'm embarrassed. I'll make up for it. I'll fix it. I'll mend it. I'll, 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 I'll change. I'll make sure that it never happens again. And then you move on. But if you tell the person, it's not you did something wrong. You are wrong. You are the problem. <laughs> then, then it's hopeless. That leads to depression. Depression comes from the sense that I can't change. No matter what I do, I am no good. I am rotten. I am no good. I'm a Russian. So if you tell a person, you are a Russian, you're not telling a person you did something wrong, fix it. You're saying throughout your whole life, no matter what happens, no matter what the world tells you, even though you're living a righteous life, you should always view yourself as a Russian. If you'll take it to heart and view yourself as a Russia, then you'll, you'll become depressed. And... It's, a, it's essential. In serving Hashem, it's essential to serve Hashem with joy. A person who doesn't have joy, a person who's not excited about his Yiddishkeit, a person who doesn't have confidence and, 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 and doesn't feel positive about his Yiddishkeit, he will not be able to sustain, sustain his Yiddishkeit. So it's essential. It's an essential ingredient in serving Hashem, serving Hashem with joy and with a light heart. A person has to feel good. You have to feel good about life. You have to feel good about it about being and existing and coping with all the challenges that you have. If a person is down, the person is depressed, the person is negative, then it's impossible, impossible to, to cope with life. It's impossible to go forward. The obstacles are so overwhelming that you, you just will not have the energy to go forward. A person has to be light. A person has to feel good. The person Hashem wants us to feel good. He doesn't want us to feel sad or or, or depressed or down. It's essential in Judaism a person should always be uplifted, inspired, feel wholesome, feel connected, feel good about life. We're living in God's world. Life is wonderful. We're here to fulfill a mission. We're here to fulfill a purpose. And every day we feel confident. We're going forward. And um, we have trust in Hashem. It's a good world. Hashem is good. Hashem is kind. Hashem. And our soul is good. And so essentially we are good. Our soul is good. If essentially our soul is good, so you feel good about it. But if you tell the person that essentially I'm a rusher, essentially I'm no good, that's a very depressing thought. And you won't be able to serve, you won't be able to to feel joy.
2: But the Mishnah is talking to the person. The oath is administered to the soul. Yes. The Mishnah, since we can't communicate with the the heavenly authorities, the Mishnah is talking to the person. It's in, in language to the person. Okay,
1: true. But what is the oath? Administer to the soul.
2: That, you, that it's wicked.
1: That when you go in your life's journey you should be righteous. The, the oath is for the future. When Once you're born, we're saying once you're born you should always be righteous, act righteously. Yes. You should always remember throughout your life that even if the community will say, Kalman your Tzadik, nonetheless, you should always view yourself as a Rasha. Is
2: that in the Mishnah? The Mishnah says it. Don't view yourself... Exactly.
1: Here. So that's a contradiction. But even without the Mishnah, it makes no sense. It's illogical. What kind of message are you telling the soul? If a person is supposed to view himself as a Russia, that I am essentially Russia, I'm a rotten and I'm no good, no matter what I do, I can't change that, then that's very depressing. And what's the point? Why, why go through this whole effort if I can't change? If I can't improve? I can't change my status. No matter what I do... I'm doing all the right things. Not only I'm doing, even the community is telling me that I'm doing the right things. Objectively. It's not just I think I'm doing the right thing. But the community is very objective. People are very honest when it comes to others. <laughs> our ego only distorts our own perspective. When it comes to others, people are brutally honest. So the community is telling me that I'm righteous. The community is affirming I'm doing all the right things. And yet the Torah says, wait, don't get excited. You're a Russian. View yourself as a Russia, You're wicked. You're evil. <laughs> so, so then I'm, I'm stuck. There's nothing I can do. I can't change. I can't improve. I'm, I'm, I'm a Russia, I'm wicked. That's a very depressing thought. You won't walk around lighthearted if no matter your best efforts, the Torah tells you that you're a wicked citizen. You're not a good person. You're a, you're a Russia, You're a wicked person. A person is motivated to try your best if you know that you're, gonna, you know, you're doing the right thing and, and that you'll be considered a good person.
3: Isn't the purpose of this so that people should serve God joyfully but also with humility?
1: Okay, but the Torah is using genuine terms. But
3: isn't that we have to have as
1: well? He's going to explain the precise terminology of the, of the Raisa. Risa says you have to view yourself as a Rasha. Rasha means wicked. Rasha means evil. If a Torah would say, consider yourself, you know, humble or room for improvement is one thing. But the Rice says, you, you should consider yourself a Rush. That's a very heavy, heavy thing to carry around with you sure. throughout your life. No matter what I do, I'm a Rush. Okay, f- furthermore.
2: Furthermore, just as the first part of the oath, be righteous and be not wicked, is vital to his success in realizing his life's mission, so too the fulfillment of the second part of the oath that he consider himself wicked is imperative. How can this possibly be so, when such an attitude hinders his joyful service of God? While if his heart will not be at all grieved by this self-appraisal, if we should propose that in order to fill the oath, the person will indeed regard himself as wicked, but at the same time resolve that his wickedness shall not perturb him, so as not to encumber <laughs> joyful service of God he may be led to irreverence, God forbid, by such an attitude with sin perturbing him not at all. For although the original resolve that being wicked will not perturb him stems only from his sincere desire to serve God with joy, yet such a resolution may very well lead to a situation where wickedness will truly not disturb him.
1: Okay, so he's proposing, perhaps the way to deal with this is with the second half of the oath, you should always consider yourself a Russia, and yet you're supposed to serve God with a light heart and a joyous heart, is to have an attitude, hey, listen, so I'm a Russia. so what? It doesn't bother me. I can't let it get to me. I'm not going to let it get me down. I'll continue my life. I'll serve God with a light heart. I'll have a joyful, positive attitude towards life. And the fact that I'm a Russia, the Torah calls me a Russia. I won't take it to heart. That's not a solution either. Because if the Torah is calling you a Russia and you don't take it to heart, it means, it means you're, you're lighthearted. It means you're not a serious person. If the Torah, from a, from a genuine perspective, the Torah says that you are a Russia and it doesn't bother you, the Torah is calling you a Russia, God is calling you a Rasha, and you say, hey, I don't care. So then, then, then you're not serving Hashem. You have no real connection. If it doesn't bother you, if you don't take it to heart, that's not, the, that's not the solution. You have to take it to heart. If the Torah calls you a Russia, you have to take it to heart. That means something is wrong. So the question remains, if I take it to heart, how will I be able to have a joyous attitude, a positive attitude, be lighthearted, and at the same time, knowing that there's nothing I can do about it, that no matter what happens, I'm always a Russia. Torah always considers me a Russia. So that's the question he begins with. And now he starts the explanation. However, the above matter. However,
3: the above matter will be more clearly understood after preliminary discussion of the true meaning of righteous and wicked. We find in the Gomorrah five distinct types a righteous man who prospers materially as well as spiritually. He knows only good, a righteous man who suffers in both material as well as well as spiritual sense. Spiritually he has not yet vanquished all his evil and in the material sense too he is wanting. A wicked man in whom there is some good who prospers, the wicked man who suffers spiritually and material and the intermediate man, Bainini. The Gemara explains the righteous man who prospers. Okay, so
1: the Gemara asks the question, why is it that some tzaddikim prosper and some tzaddikim suffer? And the Gemara answers.
3: Well, it says, the righteous man who prospers is the consummate the complete tzaddikim. Once he has achieved this level of physical suffering to cleanse the soul from the inferior of sin is unnecessary. He therefore prospers inferior as well. The righteous man who suffers is the imperfect, incomplete side. He therefore experiences some measure of material suffering, thereby cleansing the soul while it is yet clothed in the body, so that he will not have to endure any spiritual suffering in the world to come. Accordingly, the Gemara is not referring to two tzaddikim on the same spiritual level, one of whom prospers while the other suffers. Rather, it speaks of two distinct levels of tzaddikim. The Gemara thus cites only two characterizations regarding the tzaddik, consummate and imperfect, i.e. complete and incomplete who prospers and who suffers do not indicate his spiritual level. They merely describe as a result of material status. There are two
1: um, adjectives. The says a tzaddik who's good, who has it good, and a tzaddik who suffers, who has it bad, who suffers. And the says that the, the difference between the two is because one is a complete tzaddik and one is an incomplete tzaddik. So the two Adjectives, complete and incomplete, describe the spiritual level of the tzaddik. One is a perfect tzaddik, and one is an imperfect tzaddik. And as a result, one tzaddik prospers, has no need to suffer, and the other tzaddik suffers. Now he's going to bring, from the Zohar, a much deeper meaning in the expression a tzaddik who is good and a tzaddik who is evil. That we're not just talking about something external, a tzaddik who prospers and a tzaddik who suffers but it's actually a description of what's going on inside of the tzaddik himself. Continue, in Raya Mehemna.
3: Raya Mehemna, it is explained, that the righteous man who suffers is one whose evil nature is subservient to his good nature. He is a tzaddik, who still remains, who still retains some message of evil, albeit subservient to his good nature. Accordingly, a righteous man who prospers is a tzaddik, in whom there is only good, since he has totally transformed his evil nature. According to the Zohar, of which Raya Mehemna is a part, the terms who prospers and who suffers also indicate and describe the level of the tzaddik. The tzaddik who prospers is the tzaddik whom there is only good, and evil within him having already been transformed to good. The tzaddik who suffers is a tzaddik of lower stature, one of whom still harbors some evil. However, we must now understand why redundant titles are given to each level of tzaddik, complete tzaddik and tzaddik who prospers, incomplete tzaddik and tzaddik who suffers. If the complete tzaddik is the tzaddik who prospers, i.e. in whom there is only good, an incomplete tzaddik is a tzaddik who suffers, i.e. retains the vestige of evil. Why, then, is there necessary to give each tzaddik two appellations? The explanation provided further in chapter 10 is that each descriptive term denotes a specific aspect of the divine service of the tzaddik. The terms complete tzaddik and incomplete tzaddik denote the level of service of the tzaddik's God of the soul, i.e. the love of God. For it is by virtue of this love that he is called tzaddik. A complete tzaddik is he who has attained perfection in his love of God in a manner of ahaba love of the the serene love of fulfillment. The tzaddik whose ahava is as yet imperfect is called the incomplete tzaddik or imperfect tzaddik.
1: Okay, we'll stop here at that point. So basically, he's he's just explaining according to the according to the Talmud, the uh, term tzaddik who's good, who prospers, and the tzaddik suffers, and the complete tzaddik and the incomplete tzaddik are talking about two different things. One is external, the tzaddik who prospers and the tzaddik who suffers. And the other one is a description of the inner life of the tzaddik, a complete tzaddik and an incomplete tzaddik. But according to the Zohar, both of these descriptions describe the inner life of the tzaddik. Tzaddik, the tzaddik, means a tzaddik who is completely good. He's all good. There's no shadow. There's nothing negative within, within the tzaddik. All of this will be elaborated in the later chapters of the Tanya. But this is what the Zohar says. The tzaddik is completely good. The tzaddik vir'aloi means, not literally he has evil, he has bad, he suffers. The tzaddik who has it bad. But it means on a deeper level, the inner level, the tzaddik who has, still has negativity inside of him. The tzaddik vir'aloi means he's only good inside. He doesn't have even any vestige left. He has no trace, nothing left of anything evil inside of him. But the other, the tzaddik vir'aloi, is a tzaddik who still has some traces of evil inside of him. Versus the other expression, tzaddik gamr. Tzaddik gamr means the complete tzaddik. And tzaddik Shaina gamr means the incomplete tzaddik. So both of these descriptions are describing the inner life of the tzaddik. What's the difference between saying the tzaddik who's good and the tzaddik who's complete? When both of them are referring to this in the spiritual sense. The tzaddik who's only good and the tzaddik who's complete. It's, it seems like it's synonymous. It's one and the same. Or a tzaddik who has a bad meaning in the spiritual sense that he still has some bad in him and the tzaddik was incomplete. It seems like a redundancy. It's the same, it's the same expression. So he explains no, that it's really describing two different aspects of the inner life of the tzaddik. One is the how the tzaddik, the positive the relationship that the tzaddik has with Hashem. So it's describing two levels of relationship. One is a, a relationship that's based on ecstasy and pleasure, pure pleasure. That's the tzaddik who is complete. And then you have the tzaddik who is, who is incomplete, is the tzaddik whose love to God is incomplete. It's a passionate love, it's an all-consuming love, but it's not a love of delight, of ecstasy, of pure pleasure. So it's not a complete love that touches every fiber of his being, and every bone in his body. So it's an incomplete love. As a result of these two levels in his relationship to God, of his levels of love and relationship to God, as a consequence, he also have two different effects on his ego, on his, on his personality and his character. One is tzaddik v'tavle, the tzaddik who has achieved a perfect level of love for God, a love of ecstasy. That's transformational, that totally transforms his personality, transforms his being, sublimates his ego, that his ego becomes totally transformed into godly, godliness, that every pleasure, every part of him has an urge and a pull towards godliness, while, because the other tzaddik, the incomplete tzaddik, has, has an incomplete love for God, yes, a passionate love, but it's not a total ecstatic, therefore it's not transformation. Yes, he has totally subdued his ego, and his ego is totally, there's no conscious sense left of his ego, but nevertheless, it has, it's not transformational. He still has some evil lurking inside of him. He still has some traces of evil negativity lurking in, inside of him. They have been, they've been uh, more than subdued. They have been permanently put to sleep, so to speak. But they, are not, they have not been transformed. The Yetzirah has not been transformed. The negative has not become turned into positive. So that's the other description, a tzaddik that still has evil inside of him. Why? Because it's an incomplete tzaddik. And that's, and that's what the Talmud means on a deeper level. The tzaddik who has good in him, why is, he have, why is he only good, everything has been transformed to good? It's because he's a complete tzaddik. He has reached the highest level of love of God. So therefore he has, reached a, he has transformed himself. While the tzaddik who still has some negativity inside of himself, it's because his love for God is incomplete. But this is something he will go into much later in chapter 10 at greater length. Okay. And I want to continue. Okay, at the bottom of, of 35, you want to read one?
4: In the Gemara, that the righteous are judged, i.e., motivated and moved by their good nature, the good nature having the final say. The wicked are judged, i.e., motivated and moved by their evil nature the evil nature having the final say. Intermediate men are judged by both the good and evil nature. Rabbah declared, I, for example, am a benoni, said Abiyai to him. Master, you make it impossible for any creature to live. Abiyai argued thus, if you are a beni, then all those on the lower level than you fall into the category of the wicked. Concerning whom our sages say, the wicked, even while alive, are considered dead. By calling yourself a ben you thus make it impossible for anyone to live. So,
1: rabbi was the holiest Jew in his generation. He was the Rebbe of his generation, the Tzaddik in his generation. So, if he's a ben where does that leave everyone else? Everyone else is a Rasha. Everyone else is a Rasha. A Rasha is spiritually dead. Physically, he's alive, but spiritually, he's dead. So, you don't allow us to live. That's one way of explaining it. Another way of explaining it is that we know that the tzaddik is the pillar of the world, the foundation of the world. So if there's no pillar, if there's no foundation, if Rabba is not the tzaddik, if Rabba is just a benigni, just the average Jew, then there's no pillar left to the world. And what's the world standing on? So you you're, you don't you won't allow us to live. You won't you don't allow you make it impossible for any creature to to live. So this needs a great explanation because I mean, how can Rabbah, the teacher, be arguing with his student Abaya, about a fact. The question is, is he a tzaddik or not? How can you have a mistake about something so obvious? Either a person is a tzaddik or he's not a tzaddik. In the conventional understanding of the word tzaddik, a person who's doing the right thing, how can you make a mistake? A person knows himself. I woke up this morning, I I lived through this entire day. Did I do anything wrong? or didn't I do anything wrong. Did I slander anyone? Did I say any lies? Did I follow the 613 mitzvot, the code of Jewish law? I mean, either I am a tzaddik or I'm not a tzaddik. Rabba was a tzaddik. He couldn't delude himself. So, I mean, it's not, it's not a delusionary that think saying to himself, you know, I'm a, I'm a benini, I'm not a tzaddik. And Abayya says, no, my teacher, how can you say that? You are surely a tzaddik. So the whole thing makes no sense. If a benini means... In the conventional sense, the way, the way the average Jew understands the term tzaddik, beneni in Russia, that tzaddik is someone who is mostly good. Russia is someone who is mostly wicked. Bainini is so, so average, 50-50. Did Rabbi really believe that he is a beneni? That he is 50-50? And he was the holiest Jew in his generation, the most righteous Jew in his generation, who followed every law, who studied Torah all the time? Who led the Jewish community? I mean, is he delusional? I mean, a to argue with him, and Rabbi argues back. So, this needs a tr- this needs explanation, clarification. Continue to understand.
4: To understand all the offers said clearly, an explanation is called for. In addition to the question which will soon follow, that according to the common conception of a Benyuri as a person having happened to vote and have transgressions. How could a great sage like Rabbah mistake himself for ben Ben-Nuri? Further question is implied. If a ben is simply one having half mitzvot and half transgressions, then his status is readily identifiable and there is no possible room for debate. And also to understand the statement of Job, uh, Lord of the universe, you have created righteous men, you have created wicked men, for he does not decree which persons are to be righteous and wicked. The Gemara relates that God decrees that a child about to be born will be wise or foolish, strong or weak, and so on. However, whether the child will be righteous or wicked, God does not say. This is not predetermined. Rather, it is left to the individual to be choice. How then are we to understand Job's complaint? Uh, you have created righteous men, you have created wicked men.
1: So there are those who say, commentaries who say that that was Job's complaint. But of course it was mistaken. God's answer is, I don't the clear, I don't, I don't create righteous people and, and wicked people. This is a basic fundamental idea in Judaism that a person has freedom of choice. God does not decree before a person is born whether this person will be moral or unethical this, this person will turn out to be immoral. That's our freedom of choice. What is decided in heaven before we're born, it's decree that you'll be wealthy, wise, weak or strong. That we have no freedom of choice. That was already decreed in heaven when we were born. This this one will be wise, this one will be strong, this one will be wealthy. Uh, We don't choose which families to be born into and what circumstances we find ourselves in life. That's not in our choice. Our choice is very limited, very limited arena. The choices, moral choices, how we react to our environment, how we respond to our environment, the choices we make. And the wording is very precise. The Talmud says that God does not say, He does not proclaim, He does not announce who will be righteous and who will be wicked. Because, of course, God knows the future. God knows what our choices will be. But His knowledge does not force us in our choice. God knows what our choice is, but he doesn't, His pre-knowledge does not force us one way or the other. At all times, we have freedom of choice. It's difficult for us to understand how God can know before we act what we will act because our mind is not God and we're not God but we do understand that God's mind is different than ours and therefore God could know beforehand what we will choose as God knows before because for God there's no past, present, future is all the same so God knows the future before it even happens. Fine. But it's the future. It's after we've chosen. His knowledge does not force us to go one way or the other. However, if God would say and proclaim and announce that this person will be righteous, or this person would be wicked, then we would no longer have our freedom of choice. Because God creates the world through His speech. So when God, so to speak, thinks about the future, and knows and is aware of the future, that awareness, that knowledge, that thought, does not force us one way or the other. We have choice. Up to the last moment, we have choice. And God knows what our choice is, but it's totally in our hands. But if God would proclaim it, speech... Is the beginning of time and space. Once God already proclaims, then it becomes etched in stone, then it becomes a reality, a fact. Then at that point you can no longer change it. That's why a prophet, once a prophecy, once a prophet makes a prophecy, you know, you can't take it back. If it's unless it's a negative prophecy and you do truva, and you can change. But if once there's a positive prophecy, once it's stated and it's announced and it's proclaimed, the Word of God is brought down to the world, the level of speech. The world of speech, at that point, it can no longer change. That's why he says God doesn't say who's going to be a wicked. God knows, but he doesn't say, and therefore we are not forced because we don't sense God's thoughts. God's awareness is totally beyond our realm of awareness of consciousness. So God's knowledge and pre-knowledge has no impact on us, and therefore we have total choice. But if God would say it, then that would force our hand that would have an impact on us. Because through God's speech, God creates the conscious world that we live in. So that would force us. He says, God doesn't say, but he does say. And that is predetermined and that is predestined and you have no choice. Despite the American dream and the illusion that we are totally in control of our own destiny, we have no choice. Those things are not in our choice. Who's going to be wealthy and who's going to be wise and who's going to be strong and who's going to be successful? These are things that are um, Pre-predestined. When it comes to morality, that's not predestined, but then al Rebbe understood the Tamburic passage that Job was correct. Job was not making a mistake. The fact that Job made that argument, Job had a correct argument. And he c- cried out to God: He said, You're already created, predestined, who is going to be the tzaddik and who's going to be wicked. And the question is, we know clearly the Talmud states elsewhere, and that's a fundamental idea in Judaism, that God does not proclaim who's going to be righteous, who's going to be evil, and who isn't. And that's why we have freedom of choice, because if God does say so, then we lose our freedom of choice. So that's another question that he throws into the mix. you want want to continue? We must also understand we must also understand the essential nature mahut of the rank of the benini. mahut the word the Hebrew word mahut is two words Mahu. what is it exactly what is the precise definition what is what is the essence of the word benami of the rank benami
5: the mahut of the tzaddik is righteousness and the mahut of the wicked man is evil what is the mahut the essential nature of the benami
1: right the tzaddik we understand tzaddik is righteousness someone who's righteous is a tzaddik someone who's wicked is, is, is a rasha. But what is a Benoni? A Benoni is neither here nor there. What do you mean in the center, in the middle, 50-50? What does that mean?
5: He is certainly not one whose deeds are half virtuous and half sinful. For if this were so, how could Rabbi err in classifying himself as a Benoni? When it is known that his mouth never ceased studying the Torah, so much that even the angel of death had no duty to examine Such is Rabbi's a that he did not neglect his studies for even one moment qualitatively too, his learning was on so high a plane that the angel of death was unable to overpower
1: him. From amongst the Talmudic rabbis, rabbi stood out that he did not stop learning even for a moment, even for a split second. His mind, every waking moment, every conscious moment was totally engaged by the studying of Torah. The mitzvah of studying Torah is that every waking moment, every moment, every opportunity you have, you should study Torah. If a person has studies Torah 23 hours a day, 59 minutes and 59 seconds, and he wasted one second, he has transgressed. He did not fulfill that obligation of studying Torah every opportunity that he has. A person shouldn't waste a single moment, a single second of his life, but that's the mitzvah of studying Torah. And Rabbah was unique amongst his colleagues that he fulfilled this to the maximum. Every waking moment, he was so engrossed in Torah, he breathed Torah, every waking moment was Torah, not just quantitatively wise, that he studied Torah every moment. His mind was, was engaged, fully engaged by Torah, with, with his whole being. His whole being was immersed in Torah. He wasn't just studying Torah superficially and his mind was elsewhere. His mind was totally engaged in the study of Torah. He was totally occupied with the study of Torah. And he studied Torah on such a high level that it was holy. There are people who study Torah because it's intellectually stimulating. But the rabbi studied Torah on such a high level, such a pure level, such a holy level, that the angel of death couldn't approach him. When it came time for him to to pass away, the angel of death had to create a distraction. He created uh, some rattling of trees, and for a moment he stopped. He thought that that someone was after him, and he stopped studying Torah. And that split second, the angel of death was able to take his soul. To that extent, the, the Talmud doesn't tell the story about anyone else, from all the Talmudic rabbis. He was like the only one. So you can imagine his level, intensity of this Torah study. Every waking moment. Totally engaged him, and totally occupied him in the highest level of Torah study. So if a, the definition of a Benini is someone who's 50-50, 50% righteous and 50% evil, who are we kidding? Rabba really deluded himself? Rabba really thought that he was a Benini? He didn't know himself? Didn't he know that, 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 that his studying of Torah was in such a high degree, such an unusual degree, which is even unheard of, even amongst his colleagues. So, you know, and Bruce mentioned earlier, maybe it was a question of modesty. Maybe the Torah is telling us that a person should be humble. A person should be modest. That even though you're not a tzaddik, but a person should consider himself as if he is a tzaddik. This is a very foolish understanding of what humility means. Humility is not stupidity. Humility doesn't mean, it's not a game of let's pretend. Really, I'm a tzaddik. I'm going to pretend that I'm a nobody. <laughs> Reminds me of the story. And once in Shul, the rabbi was gripped by a sense of humility before God, and he starts prostrating before God, and he says, I am nothing. Before you, I am nothing. When the 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 president of the shul sees the the rabbi prostrating in front of of the synagogue, in front of the community. He also bows down. He says, God, I am nothing. When the rabbi saw that the rabbi is prostrating himself, he also bends down. He says, cries out, I am God, I am nothing. And the rabbi nudges the the president. He says, look who thinks he's nothing. (laughs) It was a... uh, on Simcha's Torah, one synagogue, <laughs> they announced that all the modest people, they called up all the modest people to come to carry the Torah for the HaKafas. And there was a mad rush. <laughs> and there was a fight, who comes first? <laughs> the story with the Shatran, there was this person who was single and he couldn't get him a shidduch, and he, every shidduch he proposed, the girl wasn't good enough for him. So the Shatran finally had a heart-to-heart talk with him. He says, you know, you have to work on your modesty. Because it's really, I mean, no one is good enough for you. I mean, you have such a high opinion of yourself. It's, it's ridiculous. She says, you know, you're right. Six months, I'm going uh, to stop dating. Let me work on my modesty. Right? He works on his modesty. Six months later, he calls the Shatran. I'm ready to date again. Fine. Sets him up with a beautiful girl. After the first date, the girl's not good enough. The exasperated. He exasperated. I, I don't get it. You've been working on six months in your modesty. What, what, what are we going to do with it? He said, Shatran, you don't understand. If the girl wasn't good enough before, I was modest. Now that I'm modest. is the. That's the story of the Rosh Shiva. He, he wanted to know what his students thought of him. So he decided to play dead. And they'll hear the eulogy hear what they really think of him. So he gets, climbs into the coffin. They announce his funeral. Anyway, they're all sitting in the chapel. And one, by one, one by one, the students get up there and eulogize their, their revered teacher. And then it grows silent. He can't take it anymore. He climbs out of the coffin. <laughs> he says, he says it's, all well, it's all well and good, but about my modesty, no one speaks about my modesty. So this is... <laughs> this is you know, this, these, uh, this is the, a foolish idea of modesty that people have. Let's pretend. Really, I know that I'm great. Really, I know that I'm the greatest. But I have to pretend that I'm nobody. So I'll hide in the back and I'll pretend that I'm nobody. Like a very famous letter, a long letter to the previous Babich Rebbe, the art site is coming up next Tuesday night, Yitzhab, writes to his daughter, the Rebbe's, in the Rebbe's wife, long letter, beautiful story about the original generation of Hasidism, and he writes about three friends, and one of them became a Hasid and the other one wasn't, and he sets out to find them, to teach them about those wonderful new movement, the Hasidic movement. And he writes the psychological delusions that were going on in the mind of this one of the friends before he was exposed to Hasidism. And the delusions, I mean, Freud would have a field day. The delusions, that was going on in his mind. You know, this was a person who knew Talmud backwards and forwards. In addition to knowing Talmud, there was nothing unusual. Every other wagon driver knew half of, half of the Talmud by heart in those days. He also studied the Kabbalah. But he studied the Kabbalah, it was so secret that even his wife didn't know that. And he considered himself a great mystic. And one time he was in shul, he stood in the back, you know, pretending like he's nobody and just ordinary Jew. And he's called up to the Torah. And he debated to himself, should he go up to the Torah, shouldn't he go up to the Torah. He didn't go to the mikveh. All the, any Kabbalist that's worth his salt knows you don't go up to the Torah unless you go to the mikveh first. But he says, if I won't go up to the Torah, I'll, it'll be a giveaway. Everyone will know that I'm a Kabbalist. So he decides, <laughs> for the sake of anonymity, he'll go up to the Torah. He goes up to the Torah. And he's stunned. Because what's the Torah portion that he reads? It's in Parshat Baal in Numbers. And he reads his Torah portion, the end of Baal towards the end. That Moshe was the most humble person that ever lived. And he is shocked. It bothered him. It troubled him. He says, Moshe, humble? How does his humility compare to my humility? (laughs) (laughs) Moshe, everyone knew about him. I'm so hidden, my, even my wife doesn't even suspect how holy I am. <laughs> this, is, this is a serious person. This is a serious question that's going through his mind. It bothers him. How could the, the Torah? And then he thinks to himself, and he's thinking, and he says, you know what? Maybe the Torah is only speaking about his generation. Moshe was the most humble person that lived in his generation. But of course, in my generation, I'm the most humble person, even greater than Moshe. But it doesn't satisfy him. You know, he does have some honesty to himself because the Torah is eternal. The Torah is speaking to all generations. What do you mean? God knows all future God knew that in the future generations is going to be him. How could God put in his Torah, in the Holy Torah, that Moshe was the most humble person? And he's thinking and it troubled him and it bothered him. And finally he came to the answer. The answer. He realized the answer. It's so, it's so obvious. The Torah says Moshe was the most humble person on the face of the earth. Why does the Torah say on the face of the earth? It said Moshe is the most humble person, period. On the face of the earth, they are saying from those who are known, public figures, everyone knew about Moshe, from those public people, Moshe is most humble. But if you take those who are hidden like myself, of course I'm more humble than Moshe. This is a serious adult who was knowledgeable and knew the Talmud backwards and forwards, knew the Kabbalah, steeped in Kabbalah, and this was something serious going on in his mind. This was infantile. This is childish. This is delusional. Without the Tanya, without Hasidus, this is, this is the delusions that are going on in people's minds. That modesty means, let's pretend. It's infantile. It's childish. Really, I'm the greatest. Even greater than Moshe, perhaps. I'm going to pretend that I'm nothing and nobody. This is not genuine. This is not authentic. The Altaravi says, this, how can Rabbah make a mistake? This is not humility. This is stupidity. This is Self-deception, self-delusion.
3: What's worse, arrogance or, or, or false humility?
1: False, false humility. Why is false humility? Because arrogance, at least, you don't delude no, yourself. You know, you're honest.
3: No, because the humility, not necessarily, but people like people who are, false humility is preferred by people around someone than arrogance.
1: Well, arrogance you can do something about. At least a person knows, at least a person could know that there's something wrong with it and I can heal it. A person whose false humility, he deludes himself that he's humble. So, the, the, you don't even have the possibility of it. This Jew, before he was exposed, before his friend, before he was exposed to Hasidism, he didn't even have the possibility of a cure. He doesn't even know that he's ill. Ill? He's greater than Moses. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, ill? He's the greatest Jew that ever lived. I, I mean, Rabbi Hilliparata, that we mentioned earlier today, he, at the age of 13, not only did he know the whole Talmud, which in those, those days and age was nothing special. He knew the Kabbalah. And him and his friend would wear thirteen, fourteen. They wore talisman tefillin all day, six days a week, all day, you know, during the day. And they would study Kabbalah. And they thought that there was no one holy than them. God is making a new paradise for them. God has to renovate paradise. At thirteen fourteen, they were flying high. And then he was exposed to the Tanya. And when he opened the Tanya, when he read through the Tanya, He said, before I thought I was a tzaddik and it was a tzaddik like us. The world has never seen. After I finished the tanya, (coughs) and he said the famous classical saying, halavai, I wish, benenit, I wish I could reach the level of a benenit. This is what what the Rebbe did for us, for us simple Jews. He removed all the delusional, psychological delusions of grandeur, of, of, you know, we have no clue where we're coming or we're going. What's coming from ego, what's coming from godly, what's genuine, what's a what's superficial, what's the thought that you're comparing to Moshe, you know what Moshe was? You know what a tzaddik is? I wish I could reach the level of a benedit. What people think of a tzaddik is not even a benedit. So self-delusion, if you don't even know you're ill, you don't even have the possibility of a cure. False humility is, is, is the worst thing, dishonesty. Not because you may be dishonest, because you don't know, and therefore you're delusional. But when a person is accurate, has an accurate diagnosis, he says, it's impossible that Rabbah was play, playing a game of let's pretend. Let's pretend that I'm a Beninim. Really, I know that I'm a Tzaddik. And the greatest Jew of my generation. And beyond all my peers, all my colleagues. Don't stop learning for a moment. There's no, no one in the world alive in his generation who even came close to him. He knew that. But I'm going to pretend, I'm going to say, oh, I'm nobody, I'm just a benini, I'm 50-50, I'm half wicked and half good. That's illusional. that That's foolish. That's not that impossible. problem to make such a mistake, a factual mistake, that's impossible.
3: So what is the person?
1: What is? What is he? What's the description? description? So obviously, no, what he's leading to is obviously a benini cannot mean the conventional understanding of the word benin. It's impossible that a benin means 50-50. Split it down the middle, 50% righteous and 50% evil. It's impossible. Because if that were the case, how could Rabbi delude himself? It's a fact. Rabbi knew that he was 100% righteous. 101%. He didn't even waste a moment of learning. The most difficult mitzvah, he fulfilled 100 to the maximum percent level. He had no time to sin even. He was busy learning every moment. And with and, and holiness, every moment that he learned, it uplifted him, inspired him. He was holy. Every moment surrounded by holiness. The angel of death couldn't even come close to him. So he didn't have any sin, he didn't have anything negative in his life. He didn't speak anything negative, didn't do anything negative, didn't think anything negative. It was all 100% positive. So how can Rabbah say, I'm a ben? That's foolish. So he's, what he's pointing at, he's just proving how it's impossible to accept the conventional understanding of the word ben. 50-50. And now he's gonna prove it even further. Continue.
5: How then could he err considering that half his deeds were sinful, God forbid? Furthermore, when can a person be considered a benign? For at the time when he sins until he repents, he is deemed completely wicked. And if he was sinful and then repented, that ceasing to be wicked, he is deemed completely righteous.
1: Okay, so the question is, at what point there's no such a category, there's nothing. there's nothing in between. Either you're righteous or you're evil or wicked. The moment you do a mitzvah, you're righteous. And the moment you do a sin,
2: you're evil. Until you do...
1: Until you do tshuva. And then you do tshuva, you become righteous again. So there is no in-between. There's no neutral. There's no neutral ground. If I'm doing a mitzvah and I'm listening to Hashem, I'm a soldier. If you're a soldier, you accept upon yourself the yoke of heaven, you're a loyal and faithful soldier, you're righteous. The moment you re- you do a sin, you're rebelling against God. So you're 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 wicked, you're on your own. You throw off the yoke of heaven. I'm not a soldier, I'll do as I please. A soldier, you get court martialed. You're, 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 you're wicked. You're not part of, you're not obedient to Hashem. You feel independent and you can do live as you please and do act as you please. So there is no neutral, there's no in between. Either you're a servant of Hashem or you're not a servant of Hashem. You can have it. It's one way or the other. It's one. It's this or that. And if you do something wrong, you can do tshuva. The moment you do tshuva, you're back in. You return home. You come back home. So then you're connected again. So you're a tzaddik. So it's impossible this should be 50-50. Now, now he's going to say, now, if you, maybe you'll say like this, a tzaddik is someone who does all mitzvahs. A rasha is someone who violates mitzvahs. A benini is someone who violates not a biblical mitzvah, but someone who violates a rabbinic mitzvah. So maybe if you violate a rabbinic mitzvah, you're not called a wicked person because you haven't violated any biblical mitzvah. It's only a rabbinic mitzvah. So if you do something rabbinic, then you're called a benini. You do everything the Torah tells you to do. So you're not violating a single Mitzvah, the 630 mitzvah natara, but you may be violating something, something that that's rabbinic, that the rabbis added on fences and muktzah and all the other, for example, and other things that the rabbis added on. So then, then that would be the beni. The rabbi says no.
5: Even yeah. he who violates a minor prohibition in the is termed wicked, as stated in Yevamah chapter two, in the Nidah chapter one. Moreover, even. he...
1: Okay, so therefore it states clearly that even someone who violates a minor prohibition from the rabbis that's enacted by the rabbis, he's called a rasha. Mikri rasha. He's called a rasha. Because God commands us to listen to the rabbis. It's part of the Torah. Mamanari says there are two mitzvot that command us to listen to the rabbis and to their enactments that 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 are made to protect us, create a fence to protect us. So therefore, the moment you violate a rabbinic mitzvah, the oral Torah, you, have, you are a rasha. You're not obeying Hashem.
0: Moreover, even he who himself does not sin, but has the opportunity to pull one another against him, and fails to do so, is termed
1: like the Jewish... So, he's saying, maybe you'll say, that the definition of a rasha, is someone who violates a bi- either a biblical prohibition or a rabbinic prohibition. What is a bainini? A baini is someone who does not violate a single biblical or rabbinic tradition. But it's someone who doesn't stop others from sinning. A Tzaddik is someone who stops others from sinning. A bainini that's in between, the sandwich in between the Tzaddik and the Rasha, he doesn't violate any prohibition. But he's not the Tzaddik. In other words, he doesn't care about others. He doesn't stop others from sinning. He has, if he had the opportunity, a Tzaddik who has the opportunity to stop others from sinning would stop them. And a bainini only worries about himself. He says he can't say that. Because even someone who has the opportunity is in the position to stop others from sinning and doesn't sin, he is held responsible. He is wicked. You are responsible because every Jew is responsible for each other. So again, either you're a rasha, or you're a Tzaddik. There is no benedity. There is no neutral. There is no in-between. And it's interesting. If you know your Hebrew... Every letter, just to show every letter in the Tanya is precise. The Rebbe's father, I believe, Yitzhak, uh, points out. In the first sentence, he says, Even he who violates a minor prohibition of the rabbi is a mikri rasha. It's called a rasha. Mikri with a mem. Mikri rasha. The next sentence, The next sentence, Moreover, even he who himself does not sin, but has the opportunity to forewarn another against sinning, and fails to do so, Nikra Rasha is called a Rasha. He uses the same Hebrew word, but earlier he says Mem, Mikra Rasha, and here he changes it, Nikra Rasha. What's the difference in Hebrew between Mikra and Nikra? Mikra is active. Nikra is is Vederach Memela, passive. You see precisely, look, the first sentence, he's talking about someone who violates a sin. If you violate a sin, you're called Mikra Rasha. In the second one, he says, someone who was in the position to stop someone and doesn't stop, he's passive. He's not doing anything. He's not doing anything. He just sits at the sidelines. There's nothing. It's called nikra Rasha. Because the sin is done automatically. It's not you did anything wrong. You didn't do something positive. That's called nikra Rasha. That even, even if passively, you just let a sin happen. You let the sin go. You let a sin happen. You could have stopped it. You let others sin. You could have stopped it. You also implicated. You also called the rush.
0: That's,
1: a, that's a, one of the 600 Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. You're not allowed to place an obstacle in front of a blind person. If you're in a position to stop someone from sinning, you, can't, you have to take responsibility. You can't just say, it's none of my business. Continue.
0: All the more so he who neglects any positive law, which he is able to fulfill, for instance, whoever is able to study Torah and does not do so, to whom our Sadis have applied the verse, because he has despised the world of Hashem, the Torah, that soul shall be utterly cut off.
1: So he's saying that if the Talmud says that someone who violates a biblical prohibition and someone who violates a rabbinic prohibition and even someone who's in the position to stop another from sinning and doesn't stop them is called a rush, uh, how much more so if someone does not commit a sin but doesn't perform a mitzvah, neglects to perform a mitzvah, even, even a mitzvah that's so difficult to keep, which is the mitzvah of studying Torah, every available moment, which is so difficult to keep. Thomas says one of the three things that's almost impossible for a person to keep. Every waking moment, every opportunity you have, you should be studying Torah, not be distracted. But, if a person violates this mitzvah, neglects to fulfill the mitzvah of studying Torah, you are called a rasha. So even if you haven't violated, you haven't trespassed, you haven't transgressed, you haven't committed a single sin, not biblical, not rabbinic, you stopped everyone in your presence from doing any sin, it was in your hands to stop. But, but you, you failed to commit a mitzvah. You had an opportunity to do a mitzvah and you didn't do it. You also called a rasha. You had an opportunity to study Torah. You had a minute free time to study Torah and you didn't study. You also called a rush. And he says, the rabbi said about a Jew who has the opportunity to study Torah and doesn't study Torah, you despise the word of God and your soul should be cut off. That even though you're studying Torah all day, but there was one minute that you could have studied more and you wasted it, neglected it. God says, you're despising my word. I gave you my gift. I gave you my Torah and you're neglecting it. You're distracted. You're not paying attention. The king is giving you something so precious and you're ignoring it and neglecting it. You are responsible with your life. Not only are you a rusher, but your soul, soul will be cut off. Okay, continue.
0: Thus claim that such a person is called wicked, more so than he who violates the prohibition of the sages.
1: So someone who neglects to fulfill a biblical commandment, even though you only neglect, you haven't done anything wrong actively, you just passively, you neglect to fulfill a positive biblical commandment, it's worse than someone who commits a rabbinic prohibition. Because this is rabbinic and this is biblical. So if the Talmud says, that if you commit a negative prohibition, a rabbinic prohibition, you call the Rasha, how much more so? If you neglect to fulfill a positive commandment, for example, the commandment of studying Torah, that you call the Rasha. So what, do we, what does this all prove? This being so,
0: this being so, we must conclude that the Benoni is not guilty even of the sin of, a, of neglecting to study Torah. A sin most difficult to avoid and counted among those sins that people transgress daily. This is why Rabbah is difficult.
1: Okay, so we must say this is the conclusion. It's obvious that a Benoni is someone who doesn't violate a single mitzvah. Not biblical, not rabbinic, not active, not passive. And doesn't. Allow others to sin when he's in the position to stop. It. And he doesn't neglect to commit and to fulfill a single positive mitzvah, rabbinic or biblical. Because otherwise, he would be a rush. And the Benini is not a rush. Benini is a separate category. Now that we understand what a Benini is, now we understand what Abhiliparish has said, halavai Benini. He thought he was the tzaddik and the greatest tzaddik that was ever born, and now he realized. He's not even a benini. Halavai, I wish I could reach the level of a Bainini. Can you imagine a as someone who's so perfect, was 100% perfect, positive, passive, biblical, rabbinic, and for all those around him, ensures all those around him are doing the mitzvot, or if he can stop them from committing a sin, he does whatever he can to stop them. This is someone who's perfect. Doesn't doesn't uh, studies Torah every waking moment, every opportunity that he has to study Torah. This is a Benin. So what we call a Tzaddik, what the world conventionally, we loosely throw the term around a Tzaddik, is hardly a Benin. Many rabbis that people talk about, oh, a Tzaddik, a Rabbi, a Rashi a Tzaddik, is so far even from the level of a Benin. What is a Benin? That we'll get to next week. But we see from here, now we can begin to understand how Rabbah can make a mistake and think that he's a Benini. Because Rabbi wasn't, it's not a fact. Abaya and Rabbi weren't arguing about facts, whether you're a Benini or not. One last paragraph. This is why Rabbi mistook himself for a Benini. Since a Benini is innocent, even
0: neglecting Torah's study, Rabbi, the mistakenly, considered himself a Benini, even though he's grouped, group he group, was pleased, observed even the most minor commandments and never ceased from his study.
1: Because right, there was nothing, factually, there was nothing to say that he wasn't a beneni. The fact that he didn't stop learning Torah even for a moment, that he was so scrupulous about studying Torah, and that his Torah study and, and his mitzvot were 100%, that doesn't make him a tzade. That's why he said, listen, I'm just a beneni. He wasn't delusional, he wasn't, it was, it was in the realm of possibility. Because the fact that he was so perfect, everything about him, his behavior, his conduct, his thought, his speech, his action. He didn't waste a single waking moment, a single conscious moment. That that doesn't make him a tzaddik. He can still be a benini. That's why we at least can understand how there can be this argument between Abayya and Rabba, whether he's a benini, and Abayya insisted, no, you're a tzaddik. Next week we'll start getting into what is the definition of a tzaddik and what is the definition of a benini. To be continued.
0: Lessons in Tanya taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.